Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. The last couple of years have been huge for Jason Isbell. The Alabama-born singer-songwriter's latest album, Weather Vanes, won the Grammy for Best Americana album this year. He also snagged a role in Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is up for Best Picture at this year's Oscars. Then there was a critically acclaimed HBO documentary released last year about the making of Isbell's previous album, Reunions, that also put his personal life on display, warts and all. On today's episode, I talked to Jason Isbell about the exhilarating experience of filming Killers of the Flower Moon and how he prepared to act in scenes opposite Leonardo DiCaprio. Heads up, if you haven't seen the movie yet, one, you should, and two, there's definitely major spoilers in our conversation, so just know that going in. Jason also contemplates how he'll write about the dissolution of his marriage and why he struggles to write a balls-out rock song. This is Broken Record. Liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my conversation with Jason Isbell. Hey, how are you, man? I'm doing well, thanks. Having a good day. How about cool, yourself? Man. Yeah, doing having a good day. Having a good day. Right. We met at uh, Shangri La with your manager Tracy right. and Rick. Like 2020. Yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah, it's been a little while. It's been was, a long time. That was a good day, though, once I got out of the car. I know that takes a long time to get out there from L.A. It's a long drive. And I think you had been rehearsing for, with Mavis Staples, maybe, for, or to do something with Mavis that day? Yes, it was. It was uh, Mavis's 80th birthday. And, yeah, I did all three of those. I did one in L.A., one in Chicago, and one in New York that year that's amazing yeah that's amazing you gotta do, you know it's it's mavis whatever mavis says you just say yes and you go do it yeah it, time is flying man but um 
I'm glad we still have some legends like her around. Yeah, no doubt. So, uh, no doubt. Her and Willie. I know, (laughs) I know, really. Willie is still kicking, man, still out doing shows. It's unbelievable. I think Willie, the thing that gets me about him is like, you know, people always say when you talk about like political stuff that you're going to run off half of your audience. But I think unless you're Willie Nelson, you don't have an audience that is made up of every different type of person. Why do you think that? Is? I mean, is it just because the decades he's been at it? I think it's part of part of what he does. You know, I think it's the way he writes songs and the way he performs. And yeah, also it's the fact that he's been doing this for nearly eight decades now. You know, because yeah. then people sort of see you as more of an institution than just a personality, and right. they figure that Willie's weathered a whole lot of different kinds of storms. Right, yeah, because I guess certainly early in his career, he alienated the traditional country establishment early. Right. So I guess he's gone through those various times of alienating this potential fan base and that one to, to arrive at the place. I guess not too unlike Snoop, where it's kind of right, like... Right, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You know? Probably why they get along so well. That and one other reason. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. At a certain point, you know, when you're that much of a legend, you're just you're just kind of like you know, more of a piece of the fabric of cultural society rather than just an individual trying to do a job. Yeah. Not to butter you up, but it seems like you're inching, like the way your career has gone from being a really incredible guitarist, great songwriter, to probably an even better songwriter and actor. (laughs) It's a lot. It's been a lot, you know. It's been really nice. The opportunities have been good ones and i felt like i've gotten to do it at a pace for the most part at a pace that i'm comfortable with and i'm 45 now so it's not like all of a sudden i'm gonna be shocked by the pitfalls of celebrity it's just like it's not really gonna bother me much at this point you know so i'm happy that things are going the way they are it's been a really nice few years yeah I want to talk about music before we, we talk about that. Killers of the Flower Moon floored me. The script, the acting, the way it was assembled, and your acting was like, who knew? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that was what was going to happen. I thought when I got there, I thought I could really screw this all up, you know, and they could send me home. But I do feel like at every stage, people were working on that movie in a way that. I think they were more invested with telling that story than they would have been in just entertaining people. And you could mm. sense that from, you know, craft services to hair and makeup all the way up to Marty and his ADs. It's like everybody there had a purpose that was beyond just making a good movie. And that kind of atmosphere really helped me do something that I didn't know if I could do or not. And then the other actors on set were so gracious with their time. I would just say, what do I do here? You know, and they would tell me, well, here's what I would do. So you would just ask? Oh, yeah. Yeah, straight up. And I told them that from the start. I was like, I don't have any training with this. I've never acted in anything before. I've done some voiceover stuff and played myself in a couple of things, but never really acted. And I said, I'm just going to go ask people what to do, and then I will try my best to do that. And I think that was kind of refreshing for you know, Ellen, the casting director, and some of the producers and stuff, because they were like, all right, well, we can work with that. Coachable. Yeah, very highly, highly coachable. That was my MO for that whole process. But the four 
women who are playing the Osage sisters were extremely helpful to me because they would come up and say, who do we know in this room? What did we do this morning before this scene started? How was our night last night? And just kind of things that would get me in the headspace of character rather than think about the details of, oh my God, did I do my bow tie right? You know, that was super helpful. And there was a high standard of expectation, I think, but at the same time, everybody understood that you know, I was not a professional actor, and, and they sort of helped me get to the point where I felt comfortable. Your role literally, quite literally changed from the one that you were offered to the one that you wound up playing, which was Bill Smith. Yeah. So what point did you realize you were going to have a scene basically going head to head with Leonardo DiCaprio? Well, I had to read that scene as part of my audition, because at first, you know, I had been offered some like smaller cameo roles, and I just went back and studied as hard as I could. Got as much information on the story and from David's book, the source material, and then went back and watched all of his like Library of Congress readings and Q and A's and found all the public record documentation on everybody after the end of the movie that they were telling, you know. And then finally, I'm just on this laptop in my room and there's Leo and Marty. On Zoom? On Zoom, yeah, because it was height of the pandemic. and. You know, I'm just there. And I kind of slicked my hair back and put on a brown shirt that looked like it could have existed a hundred years ago. I think it was VisVim was what I was wearing because it was the closest <laughs> closest I had to a hundred-year-old Oklahoma shirt, you know, and just wound up doing that like at home on my, Jeez. what was it, 41st, 42nd birthday, I think. And wow. Yeah, so it was. I was terrified. I was terrified, but I was also determined, you know, I, I, I didn't want to get that close to it and then not get it, you know? Yeah. Having a Zoom audition, that's, it's you and Martin Scorsese and uh, DeCat. I mean, that's, that's heady. Yeah, it was, it was a lot, <laughs> man. It was a lot. Does he walk you through it? Not really. You just start reading. That was that. And I sort of, I thought to myself, I need to just do things and not be anything. And that was what helped me more once I got on the set. You know, somehow through the process of trying to figure out what to do, I landed on the idea that self-awareness was the enemy. And if you spend any time or any energy thinking, does this look right? What do I look like? What do I sound like? Then that's going to take you out of the moment. So I was there thinking, don't focus on anything except the conversation that you're having with Ernest, not with Leo. It doesn't matter that it's Leo. It just, it's Ernest yeah, right it's now. Ernest. And you're not Jason, you're Bill, and that's what's happening. And so that's what I did. I just tried to do that. I think the accent helped me a whole lot. I think the fact that, you know, I had sort of adopted certain mannerisms of people that I grew up around in Alabama. Uh, you know, in my mind, Bill was kind of like a, a, a building contractor, you know, somebody who wanted to look like a big deal, but necessarily wasn't, you know, the most confident person on the inside. Yeah. 
And I just played it like that. I just thought, you know, I'm this guy that my dad didn't like when I was eight years old because he was, you know, wearing a fur coat at the football field. I'm, I'm that, you know, I'm a peacock. Yeah, Bill wasn't quite trying to fit in with what was going on around him, anything going on around no, him. No, no. Ultimately, in the best way, I mean, more I mean, in terms of, you know, clearly he had the moral high ground. Probably, but, but we don't know, you know, we don't know because I think that's another point that the movie makes is that, you know, you're given the evidence that, you know, Ernest and Hale, these people are bad people doing bad things. But with some of the tertiary characters, especially like Bill, you don't ever really know, you know, if he's there purely out of good motivations or if he's there to do the same thing that they're doing. And mm. I sort of started seeing this as a real gift because uncertain is a lot more interesting to me you know as as a as an entertainer performer artist whatever i like to to figure out what i'm talking about as i'm going you know when i'm writing a yeah. song or or anything or playing a solo or whatever so with bill i kind of thought to myself well the audience is not going to know exactly if my motivations are pure or not so i don't have to know that either you know if i deliver yeah. a shadowy character to them, then that's what they're going to take from it. And at the end of the movie, I had so many people that watched the movie saying, you know, was Bill uh, a, a good guy or a bad guy? Did he murder his first wife and marry her sister or did bad things just happen to him? And I don't know. I didn't even consider that as a possibility yeah. that he murdered the first wife. Yeah, I saw the same movie you did. Maybe, maybe not, you know? Yeah. But wasting illnesses, that didn't hold up for very long. You know, you don't hear people dying yeah. of, of wasting illness now. So it's kind of like, no. if I had to bet money on it, I would say that, yeah, Bill probably did kill his first wife and then marry her sister to keep those same land rights in his name. Wow. And that's probably why his character and Ernest were so at odds. You know, it was in yeah. my mind, the way I was playing it was because we're both con men, we're just not working together. And and nobody hates more than that dynamic, you know? Yes. What was it like to play the scene where you're dying? That was tough. That was tough. I tried to like get out of having to go full on, you know? And like right before we started to shoot, I was like, so I'm in shock, right? You know, I'm talking to Adam, the assistant director. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm playing this like I'm in shock. I'm not feeling all of this. I just got blown up. I don't really know what's going on. And Adam was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then it occurred to me, Adam doesn't give a fuck. Adam's trying to get everybody where they're supposed to be. He doesn't care. So I get down there and the first time I'm kind of like taking it easy. And then I hear Marty over the fucking walkie talkies like, you're on a 10. You are on a 10. You're feeling every bit of this. And I was like, shit, now I have to really embarrass myself, you know? So I did about three more takes where I was just screaming my head off. And, you know, luckily I was uncomfortable because I had played a show in Salt Lake City on Friday night. And then I flew on a private right after I got off stage to Oklahoma to rehearse Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And then after the rehearsal, I got back on that jet and went to Red Rocks and played two nights at Red Rocks in Colorado and then came back to Oklahoma to shoot the scene. So I had been up Jesus. all weekend. I played three shows and rehearsed that scene. And then, you know, it's late at night and the makeup just took forever. So much makeup and you can't touch your face. Like I accidentally scratched my forehead 
you know, everything was itching. And I, I did this one time and oh my God, the Swiss makeup guy was all over me. He's like, you cannot touch your face. You cannot touch your face. You know, I was like, shit, I'm just gonna have to itch, you know? And it had taken up hours to put it on. And then at one point he says, okay. So in other movies, the blood goes around the eye. But in Marty's movies, the blood goes in the eye. And I was like, oh, all right, let's fucking do it. You know, so I just held my eye open and he squirted it right on the eyeball, you know. Do you even know what this stuff's made of? No, no clue. No idea, you know. <laughs> and I'm laying down like in the house, you know, which was the house that we had filmed in. The house had been there for a hundred years and then they took it down. But yeah. I'm laying there, they're sticking all this stuff in me and piling more like wood on top of my body. And the shot is one of those Scorsese tracking shots, you know, where it Beautiful, just comes yeah. in and weaves around the house until it gets to the side of my face. Beautiful shot. I mean, one of his real signature moves. You know, when I found out it was that kind of shot, I was like, holy shit, I get to be the focal point of one of those shots is amazing, but... Yeah. Shots that goes back to mean streets. Exactly, yeah. Something that he started doing at the beginning of his career and perfected early, and that's how you feel like you're in his universe, you know? Yeah. But it was super humid, and it was late, and summertime in Oklahoma, and between takes, if I closed my eye, it would stay shut because that fake blood would kind of wow. coagulate a little bit. And so I couldn't move my arms because they were under all that wood and debris. And so when they would call action, I would have to sort of start the process of peeling my eye open without using my hands at all because my eyes had to be open when the camera got to me. So I was laying there screaming while I was trying to open my eye and I wound up not having to act necessarily as much because it was so uncomfortable that it was a little bit easier to just scream like you're in pain and pissed off and terrified, you know? Wow, man. It was hard. It was really hard because I'd never done anything like that. And it was like, I think it took us four takes, which I was pretty happy about. It didn't take all night, so. I don't know that that's a predicament too many actors have really been in, to have been blown up. I mean, you know, like sure in a action flick in the 80s like plenty of people got blown up but you get blown up off the shot and you're just kind of not seen again but then to have to act like you're yeah. blown up and then you have to act i don't know who else is really i'm sure it's happened it ha yeah it happens but not a lot yeah not a lot especially in a a movie that's worth a shit you know yes sure there's a lot of people in robocop that are that way but in a scorsese <laughs> yeah. movie yeah. Yeah. and you know yeah. i had to really do it but there's something about the way he handled the death scenes in that movie. He's done this in a lot of other ones too. It's very brief. And while it's really graphic and really disturbing, he doesn't wallow in it. It's not pandering. Yeah. He's not using yeah. that to manipulate the audience. It's like, pop, somebody's dead, they fall down, that's the scene. I want you to have that information, I gave you that information, let's move on, you know? Yeah. And th yeah. There were so many things I noticed watching the movie a couple times after it was all done, you know, where he was sort of untangling the cliches and the myths of how Native people had been treated in Westerns in the past, you know? And, and yeah. like, if you notice, almost all the women that are being murdered in this movie, something happens with their scalp. Their scalp comes off mm -hmm. or they get it cut off in a field autopsy, or which to me was like a very clear nod to 
you know, saying that the natives would scalp us white people yeah. in all of those John Wayne movies and forward westerns and everything. And then like the first scene where they're smoking the death pipe and they're smoking their way of life, you know, they're giving like basically a funeral for their way of life once they found the oil. You know, that's also kind of a reversal of the whole like idea of the peace pipe and, and you know, what you would normally expect uh, a, a native burial ceremony to be like. It's like they're burying their era and, and their way of existing. There's so many of those beautiful things where I'm like, oh, I see what he's doing. He's just reversing the script and showing you a little bit more of what it was really like. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with more of my conversation with Jason Isbell. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch Subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with more from Jason Isbell. To your point about the reversals that he was sort of including in the movie, there were people who were pretty upset about it. And I guess shouldn't be surprising, but I mean, given the level of 
art that was displayed. I don't know how you can take umbrage with his storytelling yeah. or, or yeah. what he was trying to do even in terms of uh, subverting the history of cinema. Right, right. I can see it if you're triggered, if you have like generational trauma and watching these things happen to indigenous people is triggering to you. That makes total sense to me. Um, yeah. You know, it's not a criticism that I would levy at the movie because I would have no reason to. But when somebody does, I can't argue with that. I'm like, yeah, that, make, right. that makes sense to me. It would be really hard to see, especially the way uh, a lot of Native cultures handle, uh, you know, ancestry and their forebears and sort of take, you know, spiritually that weight on in a way that the rest of us might not. I understand. But as far as from a storytelling perspective, it's hard for me to, to see any flaws. And I met more people who were calling the storytelling like woke. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know about it. If you use that word that I turn off, I'm clocked out. You know, if you're using that in that way, if you're not Donald Glover and you're talking about being woke, that I am not paying attention to you anymore. That is uh, pretty incredible to me to imagine how somebody can see something that's so historically accurate and handled with such respect for what actually happened. But, you know, there's a reason we didn't already know this story. And, yeah. you know, it had to be intentional. Like that, that had to be done intentionally uh, or we would have all learned it in the sixth grade, you know. And even people out yeah. there in Oklahoma, did, they didn't know this stuff had happened. And yeah. I mean, you know, with what was going on in Tulsa, with black businesses in Tulsa, you know, is this all happened at the same time? So there were black folks coming from Tulsa to Bartlesville, Paul Huska to get away from, you know, the massacre that was happening over there. And they were hiding yeah. out around the Osage who had their own shit to deal with. And I thought that was beautiful. Some people thought that the part where King Hale sees the newsreel for a film uh -huh. about the Tulsa massacre, that there was a ham-fisted. Ham-fisted by God, because that's what happened, you know. <laughs> that's what happened. That's what happened. Yeah. And it was right next door. And I mean, Tulsa was an hour away, you know. I'd drive over yeah. to Tulsa to get dinner. And then at the same wow. time, when we got there, when we showed up on set, we were looking at photos from the era, you know, in the costume department, trying to get everything right. And they were wearing masks. You know, because the flu that started in Kansas that everybody called the Spanish flu was then. It was 1918, 1919. Yeah. And right. we were all standing there in our masks looking at the pictures of people wearing bandanas around their nah. face. Like, what the fuck, man? A hundred years later, exactly a hundred years later. You know, that's and, wild. Yeah. So history clearly repeats itself if you, you know, don't pay attention to it. And sometimes if you do. But yeah, I heard a lot of people talking about how, like Molly's character, you know, why did she stay around so long? You know, why did she stay with it? Why did she try to work it out for so long? And that's one that really bothered me because I think that shows a really huge lack of understanding of her perspective, you know, and the circumstances that had led her to that point in her life and what her options yeah. were. It's like, well, yeah. maybe if she didn't have to have a legal guardian to take her own money out of the bank, she wouldn't have been so yeah. motivated to stay with this asshole, you know? Yeah. But there was a lot of like real, you know, people who just weren't willing to take one extra step to think, well, maybe that person's experience is a little bit different than mine. Well, yeah. And also just people who, you know, put themselves in a hypothetical situation. They know exactly. What, I mean, yeah. 
armchair quarterbacks. Turns out it's complicated what we do. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not simple. There are a lot of different uh, uh, variables that go into every choice that we make. And she wore those all on her face. You could see all of the complications yeah. on her face. What, what do I do? Right. Her acting was just beautiful. Yeah, she's unbelievable, man. And that last scene with the two of them where all she really wanted him to do was tell her the truth. And he couldn't even after all that, yeah. he couldn't, you know, she's basically just saying, do you love me more than your fear, you know? And yeah, he couldn't do it. And that was that. And yeah, Lily is uh, really like nobody I've ever known. I mean, we stay in touch, you know, and I, I saw her when I played in Oklahoma a few weeks ago. And it's nuts because, you know, there've been some people like Chris Stapleton opened for us right before his thing just went nuts. and. You know, Casey Musgraves and Sturgill, there have been people that I've been around who are on a real pretty steep upward trajectory, but I've never seen it like with Lily right now because, you know, yeah. she's just taking over the world all of a sudden. Yeah. And I don't honestly don't think it's going to change the person that she is. And that is like, that's rare, man. That's unicorn shit right there. It just seems like she keeps being, settling more into herself as all this beautiful chaos happens around her right now. And I yeah. think she's just gonna use whatever sort of recognition she gets to, to do cool things for other people, which is really a gift to everybody. Well, it's great. I mean, it seems like she's in, not that I can be a judge of this, I don't act, but she seems like she's an actor in the mold of a real actor, like a De Niro or DiCaprio or a Pacino or the, the people who, it's a craft. Yeah. It's not, I'm not in to be famous. I'm not in to be a movie star or celebrity. Right. It's like, so what I do, and it's just gonna get better and better. And Yeah, it's serious. And the work itself is the reward, you know? And and like that was something that surprised me about Leo, because I mean, dude is very, very famous, and he has been since he was a little kid, and that man works hard. He was out there all day, every day, first call, you know, usually last to leave. You know, it's 95 degrees and we're all in tweed suits and he's out there all day. And if he gets half an hour, he runs back to his trailer and takes a nap and comes back out there and gets back to work. Because I was very impressed, you know. It can't be the money that's motivating him at this point because you don't have enough time left to count it, you know. Yeah, that's right. Well, I could talk to you about this film forever because it's so good, but we should talk about music and maybe we can listen to something real quick before, all right, okay. uh, before we make a switch. Where the fuck did this come from, man? <laughs> this is Kevin Kenny. We did this tribute to Kevin Kenny, the songwriter, one of my favorite people on earth. But the thing that Kevin does that I love so much is like he had a band driving and crying uh, in the 80s and the 90s, and they still tour, they still do stuff. But he's a folk songwriter and he writes folk songs, but this band would play big old boneheaded rock riffs. And it was a combination that's so hard to pull off, but Kevin has pulled it off so well for so long. They had a pretty big hit with Straight to Hell. It was on college radio, I'm going straight to hell. That was their big one. But so many good songs where it's like, you know, the riff sounds like ACDC, but then what he's singing over the top is like Woody Guthrie. It's amazing. 
And when I first started touring solo, I was still with the drive-by truckers. Some of the first solo shows that I did were with Kevin. I was opening for it. He would go to the Goodwill and buy a lamp, and that would be his stage show. He would put the Goodwill lamp on stage and turn it on. That would be his light show, you know. And then after a few shows, after the end of the tour, he gave me the lamp. I was so honored. It's a horribly ugly lamp. Like, I've never been with a woman that would allow it in the house. So there's a lamp in storage that I got from Kevin Kenny. But that was sort of a rite of passage for Southern folk songwriters, was if you got a lamp from Kevin Kenny, you know. That's amazing. Mm. You sound incredible on that. Yeah, thank you. I love singing rock songs. It's, a hard, it's hard to write a rock song uh, for me. I know for some people it works differently, but I do better with like these introspective, quiet, sad sort of jams. And then when it's time to write like a balls out rock song, it's just too many options, you know? I overthink it. So when I get a chance to sing one, I really enjoy it. Is it too many options in terms of the the guitar playing or the the songwriting? Lyrics, I think. That's what's hard for me. Because yeah. I'm not going to write a song where I'm like, what's the thin lazy line in Jailbreak where it says, hey, you good-looking female, come here. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't write that down on a piece of paper and not mark it out, you know? Like, I can't, I'd be like, man, no, I can't let that slide. But that, I can't think of anything that would be more perfect from Phil Lina than that, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a craft, you know, it's really tough. And, of course, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson, you know, they were really good at that kind of thing. A song like Big Balls. Yeah, you know? it's, it's like, what so dumb. But I would not want it to be different at all. And I never get tired yes, yeah. of it. It never gets boring. Yeah thunderstruck for Christ's sakes. Like who's gonna write that down as yeah. a songwriter yeah. and say, this is my song today. But if it had been different, it would have sucked, you know? So yeah, that's a tough call to write a rock and roll song. It's really hard. Do you have riffs stored away somewhere? Oh that yeah. Are like from failed rock and roll songs? Yeah, tons, tons. I haven't accepted that they're failed yet. One day, you know, it'll be when I'm 80, I'll put out the bonehead ACDC sounding record. Wait, but why can't you do like the Kevin Kinney thing of like, just put like, you know, the lyrics you would normally write over the bombastic. I do sometimes. I do two or three songs on a record. I do that. But that's tough because, you know, at a certain point, it becomes lipstick on a pig. You know, at a certain point, <laughs> you're like, this doesn't sound right. The music is not going with the words that I'm hearing. And then you've made a production mistake, you know. Like if I was singing the lyrics to Elephant, yeah. you know, over the music to You Shook Me All Night Long, like people would be pissed. People would be like, man, this is terrible. You didn't take this seriously at all, you know. So you got to be careful. It's got to be congruous in yeah. some way, you know. It's got to feel like one piece of work. So to do it right, you got to just walk that line where the lyric just barely scoots into dumb enough and the riff just barely scoots into smart enough to where they kind of line up. <laughs> but if you get too smart with the riff, then you're making prog rock. And if you get too dumb with the lyric, then you're just writing an ACDC song. So you've got to like really skirt that line. That's a great point. You don't want to venture into prog rock. Unless that's what you make, yeah. if you're good at that. But if you if you dip your toe in prog rock, that's going to be really bad because they, they take that shit real seriously. You know? Super serious. Yeah. Tell me about Strawberry Woman, man. That line, this young man crying in a cowboy hat, he's got square boots, so he ain't for real. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of argument over which sort of cowboy boots you should wear. My little brother wears square-toed boots. 
And I bought him a pair of pointier toe boots for Christmas, so I'm hoping to move him over into that. But that's also kind of an inside joke about playing the pedal steel guitar, because if you'll notice, the pedals are so small and they're so close together that if you don't wear the right kind of shoes, you'll accidentally hit more than one pedal at a time. So this is why the pedal steel is a true cowboy instrument, because cowboy boots are what you wear in order to be able to pull, to hit just one pedal at a time. Fascinating. So that's why the next line wouldn't last five minutes on a pedal steel. Right, because he'd start hitting the I wrong. I thought they were disconnected. It seems like it. But if you're a musician, you go, oh, I see what he means, you know, because a lot of steel players, if they don't wear cowboy boots, they'll play in their socks, you know because you just got to be able to hit a very narrow pedal there and not hit the ones next to it. But also like, I like this image of, you know, the naivete of having your heart broken. And a, a cowboy, like a real cowboy, is a very specific type of naive. Like they have chosen mm. to spend their time around animals rather than around yeah. people. So they don't learn these worldly things. Mm. And then by the time they're old, they become wise before they become worldly, you know, which is a really interesting combination. They make for very stubborn, very interesting old men. But when they're kids and they're still, you know, in the shape that you have to be to break horses and things like that, they're basically frozen as 12 or 13 year olds for a good long while because they just don't spend time around human people. They become wise before they become worldly. Yeah, so their wisdom comes from nature. It comes from yeah. work, and it comes from, like, finding things out on their own. They don't get a whole lot of advice, cowboys. They find things out the hard way. Yeah. Cowboys never cease to be fertile songwriting territory, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. For Willie Nelson or for Phil Lynott, you know, they all write about it. Or Jason Isbell, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. It's just a really different type of person. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an American cowboy. You know, there's a bunch of them in Manitoba and Alberta and Spain, yeah, right. you know. And they got smaller horses in Spain, but it's the same basic principle. But yeah, it's interesting because it's like you're making this conscious decision to not participate in modern civilization. So there's a naivete and a kind of an innocence about it that's really beautiful. But at the same time, on the rare occasion that they wander into town, hilarity ensues, you know. How did your brother take that line, by the way? Oh, he got a kick out of it. He got a big kick out of it. But he is definitely more uh, cowboy. Like, he's a real redneck, you know. Like, somebody asked me the other day, like, what would you do in the apocalypse? So, like, I find my little brother. You know, we would go out in the woods and come back fatter than we were when we left, you know, because he could actually just wander off and survive just fine. He's one of the only people I know that could really do that. Man, you got to take him on tour with you then. Man. I know. See, that's the that's Forget what going you, to find that's him. The just keep opposite. him with you. You take him on tour and then you ruin it because that is not oh, where okay. he wants to be. He don't want to be in a tour bus in New York City. You know, he wants to be out in the woods somewhere. <laughs> a cowboy on a tour bus in New York City would be. Uh... Yeah. I mean, it's happened. I guess that happened a lot early on. You know, George Strait had to get everywhere somehow, but I don't think he would enjoy it as much as I would. Speaking of George Strait, man, I was thinking about him recently. His music is phenomenal. Yeah. But he feels like, um, I don't know, like, I guess he feels now, oddly, like a part of the uh, fabric of country now, more than like an artist. Oh, yeah. He's like, he really is like an elder of the music. Not, I don't mean to put it no, I know what you mean, that though. way or yeah. in an insulting way, you know? He's a legend. And, you know, he got it from not really writing his own songs. Like, he was an interpreter of songs, yeah. which kind of like 
to me is the part of country music that relates to what like Sinatra was doing or some of the old jazz singers, you know, who weren't composers. And I think that there can be an art in writing songs. There can be art in delivering songs, interpreting songs as well, you know, and I think you don't have to be a songwriter to be an artist, but if you call yourself a songwriter or if you're not a great singer, then, you know, you're going to have to write some of your own songs or step things up a little bit. But George Strait had such a wonderful quality to his voice and delivery of those songs. You know, sometimes it's not something you can learn. Sometimes it's just about where your voice sits and the resonance of your voice, especially in country music or, you know, show tunes. I mean, it's like Sinatra would just go in and start singing. You know, you better have the tape rolling because you might get one take because he knew that what people wanted was the quality of his voice. And I think it was that way with George Strait. Now you get to somebody like George Jones, and then that's a whole different thing because, you know, George Jones had that sort of country quality to his voice, but he could control it in a way that was just unbelievable. Every once in a while on Instagram or TikTok or something, a clip will come up of him just sitting around drinking a beer and singing a song, and it sounds like the best possible performance anybody I know could Mm. pull off on a stage at a football stadium, and it's just him sitting in a chair smoking, drinking, you know, not even paying attention to what he's doing. George Jones really had a, a beautiful gift. But it doesn't take all that, you know? I think if you're good at delivering somebody else's words in a way that makes people believe it, and you have that natural quality to your voice that sits in just the right place, which is what George Strait had, I think you can get yourself into the fabric of country music that way. Is it weird now for your songs to sort of start becoming part of like the songbook? It's all weird. Everything is so fucking weird to me, but I like hearing my songs out in the wild, even if other people are singing them. Now, stuff happened with Morgan that, you know, I wasn't a a fan of after that. But at the time, when he covered the song, I thought, man, this is great. A bunch of young people are going to hear the song. And it gave me some reassurance that when you're being specific with these songs, that's when people really have a close connection to them because they think he knew a secret about me. How did this songwriter know this very specific, very detailed feeling that I was having, I thought I was alone. And to me, that's the best thing that art can do is when somebody says, I thought I was alone until I heard this. You know, Now I know there's at least one other person out there that feels yeah. exactly the same way. I think to do that, you have to you know, try not to be too vague. You, you can't really write with a target in mind, like a specific audience that you're trying to nail. You have to just make yourself the target, you know, and write the kind of music that speaks to a very detailed account of your own experience. And then you just wait. You just do your best job with it and you wait for somebody a thousand miles away to pop up and say, that exact same thing happened to me. And that's a really beautiful thing because then you're reminded of what we have in common rather than our differences. We're pausing for one last quick break and then we'll be back with Jason Isbell. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. 
He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Here's the rest of my conversation with Jason Isbell. Your ability to, to not only to write so personally, but I don't, it seems like you have a commitment to living your life openly and honestly, you know, Mm -hmm. like similar to the way like Howard Stern, you know, let's say, like seems to have no qualms putting any of his follies on display for the world. It seems like you have had no qualms doing that. And it's helpful for one, I think to other people, because just like a song that's so personal to you can be heard by somebody else and they can sense that they're not alone, feel that they're not alone, feel seen, feel heard by something that relates only to you, but now is not only personal. But it's like being a married person myself that went through the pandemic, 
watching your HBO film was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Like, we weren't the only ones. You right, know, that. right. And that was tough, man. That was tough. You know, and there are qualms because I sit back and think, why do I have to do this shit again? You know, why I got to tell everybody what's going on once again? But with the bigger risks come the bigger rewards as far as that goes. And, you know, there's a certain level of accountability. Like if I know that my thing is to be honest with people about how I live my life, that I'm going to try really hard to live my life the right way in a way that I'd be proud of, you know. But also I sort of see it as most of the risks to me are negligible. You know, I'm a person from a protected class and I have been blessed with the encouragement and the gifts that I need to climb out of Trailer Park, Alabama and get to a place where I'm really comfortable. And in that way, I kind of feel like I'm one of the people with the armor on, you know what I'm saying? And those people should go to the front of the line because they have the armor on. So if I can say something that somebody else would be afraid to say, you know, and then they can resonate with that, they're going to get more out of it because it's not necessarily possible for them to say, hey, hands up, here's what's going wrong with my life, or here are the mistakes that I've made, or here are the things that have been difficult for me. They might not be able to start that conversation, but they might be able to chime in if you start that conversation. Was there anyone like that for you growing up? That's a good question. You know, I felt like my grandfather was pretty good about being open and honest with everybody. And when I was a kid, he was a a Pentecostal preacher in Alabama, and he didn't know how to write until he started preaching. My grandmother taught him how to write so he could write down his sermons and and give them in church. And, you know, he'd grown up sharecropper and basically got to the point where, you know, he could go to the grocery store and get what he wanted. And so the worst thing you could do would be send him to the grocery store because he would come back with all kinds of like old fashioned candy, you know. So when I was a kid, I was like, <laughs> I want to go to the grocery store with him, you know, um, yeah. because it's all the stuff that he never had when he was a kid, couldn't afford when he was a kid. But he was a very honest person. And I, I noticed that like when there was a deal, when he was buying a car or trading a guitar or trading a horse or an animal or something, he usually got beat. Almost yeah. all the time, he would he would get beat in those deals. And I, at one point, I thought, man, this sucks. My granddad always gets beaten. But then after a while, I thought, you know what? That actually is what you want to be. You want to be the guy that is honest. Because when he would go in, he would say, well, this horse has had too much sweet feed and it's foundered, so it's not worth much. But somebody else he was trading with would, you know, doctor things up and make it look really, you know. And uh, by the end of his life, I sort of figured out he didn't have any regrets, really. And I thought that's because yeah. he'd been honest. You don't look back on your deathbed and say, I wish I'd gotten more for that truck. But you might look back and say, I feel bad for cheating so many people out of something. Yeah, because you don't know what you're cheating the other person out of. Yeah, you don't know how they came by their money. You don't know how they got that horse. You don't know. And you're not interested in it because you're just trying to get yours. And I was lucky enough to grow up around people who took that stuff seriously and realized that what might seem like a loss at the time, it was a, a win in the long run by being more honest. Yeah, that's that's interesting, man. At what point did you realize that that was actually an asset of your grandfathers? In my late teens, probably, when he was getting on in years and didn't have a whole lot of time left, I thought. Because I, I, I did that with all my grandparents, really, when they were close to the end of their life. I just kind of found myself 
not on purpose, but just sort of looking back and thinking, well, how would I feel if I was in that spot? Would I have enemies or regrets or people that I wanted to settle up with or apologize to? And and he really didn't. He wasn't afraid. He was a religious man, faithful man. And he thought, well, this is going to be a relief. I'm going to go on to somewhere beautiful. He didn't have anybody to apologize to. He asked my dad, like, at the end, he's like, you need any money? Before I go, you need any money? My dad was like, no, I got my own family and my own job, and I'm all right. But that's what he was thinking about. Still was taking care of other people. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good way to go out. It's a great way to go out. That mm -hmm. seems like, you know, he knew the meaning of life. I think so. I think that's true. If you can leave with your tab all settled up, but it seems like that'll do. Do you think you need to live your life as honest as you do to be as honest in yourself? Like, in other words, can you, I'm thinking about like a Dylan maybe who, well, maybe he's a bad example because I don't know how honest he is in his life. No, he, yeah, he's not. I mean, I think he's honest in everything, but I don't think he's truthful. I think he's honestly lying about 90% of the time, but that's what he's committed himself to. And it's like, right. if I wanted to be Bob Dylan, that's what I would do too, but I don't want to be Bob Dylan. I love Bob Dylan, but that's not what I want to be. I want to be me, you know, and my path, the way that I have found is most rewarding for me and gives me an individual voice is to reveal these things in an honest way. Also, I kind of like somewhere along the line, I committed myself to this idea of unraveling the bullshit and the mystery of all of it. This idea that, you know, you can be a rock and roll star and not behave like a terrible man. Mm. And you could be a songwriter and not have to mythologize everything. I think part of that mm. came from like, when I was 14, 13, 14, a Pearl Jam hit. And I thought, mm. man, these dudes are dressed like me. They look like me and they're not trying to dress it up. They just walk on stage and they play these songs and it's amazing. It's just as entertaining as, David Bowie to me at the time. Not that there's more value in one way or the other, but it just made more sense for me as a person to just continue being who I was and then just take that on stage and keep doing it. Yeah. You announced you're separating also from Amanda. Mm. How are you going to navigate that publicly in your songwriting life? I, mean, I don't like, know. What do you think I should do? <laughs> I don't know. Help. What do I do? Um, yeah, I think I'm just going to try to be honest in all the ways that I legally can. I mean, there's certain things that we've agreed not to talk about, but I think I can still manage to tell people who I am and what the truth is from my perspective. You know, it, it's one of those things where not everything that ends was a failure. I, I think we did a lot of really beautiful things together, and I have a really fond memories of of all of that and i don't regret any of it you know uh, even the hard stuff yeah. it's like when i got into recovery you know i wound up after a few years looking back and thinking i don't regret even the worst parts of that because it all kind of goes into making me who i am you know and the time will come when the wounds aren't still fresh the time will come when i'm able to take all this and put it into my work in a way that that is honest and true but makes sense for me I'm, I'm going to be patient. And in the meantime, I got plenty of other shit to write about. Yeah. That's one thing I think a lot of songwriters miss is like the inspiration. You don't need it, man. You don't need it. It's, it's everywhere. If, if you can't just look out your window and find 20 things to write a song about, 
then you know you're not a real serious songwriter yet because it's all over the place. Meaning you don't need to write about the thing that feels necessarily most pressing in your right. life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You might not be ready for that right now. You might need to get there through other means, you know, work yourself up to it. Yeah. There might be steps. And then somewhere along the way, you could discover the beauty of allegory. I'm sure I have been writing about the things that are going on right now in my life for quite a while. You know, I'm currently writing about those things. But on the page, it might look like I'm writing about a butterfly or a car accident. That's the yeah. beauty of allegory. You don't have to know what you're talking about all the time. You know, you don't have to know what the overarching idea, your brain will work on that level. If you just focus on details and rhyme and making something beautiful happen, eventually by the end of it, very often I look down and go, oh, I just wrote a song about my marriage or I just wrote a song about my child. This whole time I thought I was writing about football or something, you know? Yeah, 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 fascinating. I forgot to ask, you wrote Weather Vane's on set of Killers of the Flower Moon, right? Yeah, almost all of it. Yeah, a good chunk of that record I wrote on the set. Did the character you were playing influence your point of view as a songwriter at that moment, or was it easy to keep that separate? I don't know that, that Bill influenced that, but I definitely know that the work that I was doing influenced it, because on one hand, the most obvious way was just watching Marty conduct the whole orchestra and the fact that he was open to hearing ideas from other people. When I went out there, I thought either it's going to be, he's going to be a, a micromanager and he's going to be in on every decision or he's just not going to be there that much. I did not expect him to have that kind of perfect mix of those things where he was mm. active, he was on set every day working out in the heat, even at 80 years old. He would make the L's with his fingers and look at the shot yeah. and say, I want it to look like this, you know? Amazing, yeah. amazing. Crazy. It's like a movie about a movie about a movie. But, you know, there was one night where it was just me in the scene, and so it was Marty and then the AD and all the crew, and I had the pistols. When they throw the dog on my front step, the dead dog, right before I get blown yeah. up and I walk out. It's part of that montage. And I walk out the front door and I see the dog and I've got my pistol in my hand. And, you know, I thought, man, I gotta, I gotta do this. So at first I said, I think we need to load this pistol because, you know, the weight's gonna need to look right. And if they see it from the end of the barrel for any reason, you're gonna wanna see slugs. And, you know, so the prop master did the thing where they had taken each shell casing, they had pried the lead out, and then they had swabbed the inside out, dropped one BB inside the shell, and then pressed the lead back in. Then they would shake it. Every time they would load one in, they would shake it by my ear, and I would have to verbally confirm I hear the BB, and then they would put it into the pistol and then shake it and put it into the pistol and just to make sure. So that's what, like when that accidental shooting happened on the rust set, I was like, something's way off here because I could not have shot anybody if I had tried. But after that, I thought, you know, this is a single action pistol. And me being from Alabama, I used to have a pistol very similar to the one that I was holding in the, in the movie. And I thought, these Yankees don't know about single action. I'm gonna have to say something, you know? And uh, if I walk out on my step, I see the dog. I'm not sure that it's dead yet. I don't know if the people are still in the yard. I'm cocking the pistol because with a single action, if you don't cock it, you can't fire it. That's why in the old Westerns, they would hold the trigger down and fan 
the hammer like this. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's the hammer that does the firing. Like with double action, when you start to pull the, the, the trigger, the pressure causes the hammer to come back and then go forward. But with single action, you have to pull the hammer back first. The trigger, all that does is release it so the hammer goes forward. So that means every time you fire, you've got to cock and fire, cock and fire. And so I just tapped Marty on the shoulder, and I was like, I think I would cock the pistol. And Marty said, you think you'd cock it? I was like, yeah, and I explained why. And he said, all right, let's shoot it. So they shot, it took another three or four hours. They shot the scene of me cocking the pistol. And then when I saw the movie, it was in the movie. It was the most satisfying click. But taking away from that, you know, I went in to produce weather vanes that I'd written mostly out there. And I thought, man, there's a way to do this where you can retain your vision and still hear what everybody around you has to say. And you can let them enjoy participating and making the project a better thing. And still, this is your movie or this is your record because nobody had any question by the end of it who had directed that movie. That was really sort of inspiring for me, you know. That's an incredible thing, yeah, because uh, making music can be such a singular, you know. Lonely, uh, yeah, yeah. Lonely, solitary thing, and making a film by necessity is involves so many more people beyond the director That's or right. the writer or the auteur, yeah. you know, or there the actor. There are hundreds yeah. of people, hundreds of people on that set. But, you know, he was listening to people, and, and it made for a better movie, and it was still Marty's movie, so that was a good thing to see. Was your band grateful? Oh, yeah, yeah. We had a great time. We had a blast, you know, because it was like, you know, I would say, why don't you go mess with this for a while, see what you come up with. And, man, there's nothing that a musician likes to hear more than that when you're in the studio. Like, Hell, yeah, I'll go yeah. turn some knobs and push some buttons. I'm glad they had a great arc. I was so, so sad to see him in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be on tour of reunions and just mowing the lawn, like, damn, I want to get out there. I know, I man. I don't know. It's, it's, they've had a fulfilling studio time, and he can yeah. get out there with you now. Knock and, on you know, wood. The, the quarantine is behind us. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. Hey, man, well, thanks for taking the time to chat, man. It's like, I wish I could. Thank you. I want to do a damn documentary on that movie. <laughs> it's so good. A documentary man. on it, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Good to talk to you, Justin. I appreciate your time. Thanks to Jason Isbell for the chat. We'll be rooting for Killers of the Flower Moon at the Oscars. You can hear all of our favorite Isbell songs throughout his career on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced and edited by Leah Rose with marketing help from Eric Sandler and Jordan McMillan. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like this show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. 
Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at newstocktrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is newstocktrend.com. That's newstocktrend.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.